In the early weeks of 2012, John Knapp published a book titled, How the Church Fails Business People and What Can Be Done About It. In the book, he argues that the church has not helped Christians succeed in the secular business world because churches have not helped Christians in the secular business world develop the day-to-day ethical decision-making skills that they need. It's an interesting accusation, but it's an accusation that also implies quite a lot about the relationship of the church to Christian leaders in the secular business world. So has the modern church failed to equip business people? And if so, what can be done about it? To find the answer to these questions and to a host of other related questions on the topic of Christian leadership in the secular world, I put Dr. Albert Moeller on the line. Inside the church, I'm not aware of a more gifted or successful leader than he has shown himself to be over the years. Dr. Moeller is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, an institution that he transformed during his nearly 20 years of leadership. Dr. Moeller is also the author of the forthcoming book, The Conviction to Lead, 25 Principles for Leadership that Matters, to be published in mid-November of 2012 by Bethany House. He joined me by phone from his office in Louisville, and I began by asking him if the church has let business people down, and if so, how? I think the church has failed not so much by a strategic decision to ignore the business world, but by a couple of things, a confluence of the fact that many churches simply don't know what to do with the world of business. Uh, And and that is partly because of a social distance and uh, otherwise because some churches simply don't have the kind of natural entree into that contact. I think the second reason, though, is a little more serious, and that is uh, a lack of confidence that we really know what to say in that world. And I think we do. I, I, I would not suggest that Christianity comes with a, a, a technical and comprehensive uh, stated uh, economic or fiscal policy, but it does come with the application of Christian truth to anyone who is deployed for the glory of God in the world of business. In your book, one of the most helpful points that you make is that leadership is about storytelling. You write this, quote, No organization that exists simply for itself is worth leading. Leaders want to lead organizations and movements that make a difference, that fill a need and solve real problems. That story frames the mission and identity of the organization and explains why you give your life to it. The excellent leader is the steward-in-chief of the story, and the leader's chief responsibilities flow from the stewardship. Leadership comes down to protecting the story, bringing others into the story, and keeping the organization accountable to the story. The leader tells the story over and over again, refining it, updating it, and driving it home. End quote. Explain this idea more for us that leadership is storytelling. Well, it's more than that, of course, but it's never less than that, because any leader seeking to lead in any important endeavor ends up telling a story about where things are and where they need to be. And furthermore, the leader comes with his or her own story. That story becomes a part of explaining how the convictions have come to take a a possession of the leader and, and why he wants others to be a part of that story in order for the organization, the, the congregation, the institution, the family, whatever group it is, to arrive at the, uh, at the, the destination that is implied by and, and uh, uh, fulfilled by the story. So whether it's, it's uh, a political leader saying, this is what America is all about, this is what, what we were founded to be, this is now what we need to do, or, or whether it's, uh, it's Moses reminding the children of Israel over and over again, remember your story. We were in bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt, but God brought us out by his mighty hand. And, and then everything that follows is predicated on the fact that, okay, now we know our story, we know who we are, that implies what we are to do. 
So how does a Christian leader who understands the redemptive storyline of creation, fall, redemption, recreation, how does this businessman then understand what he does on Monday in relationship to this grand biblical meta-narrative? You know, Tony, I think that's a fantastic question, and it is, uh, well, answered only partially in terms of anyone trying to to take a stab at that. But let, let me suggest this. I think a part of what the Christian in the business world, you might say even in the secular world, because it, it would apply to the world of politics or even the, the world of academia or, or the cultural creatives. I think a part of what the, the Christian has to say is, look, what we're doing is really important. I'm absolutely convinced this work is important. It's important because in this world, we've been put here for a purpose, and, and I'm very thankful to have these gifts and this opportunity and to be with you in this endeavor. But at the same time, the Christian leader says, as important as this is, and as much as we're going to, to strive for excellence and push ourselves to, to go beyond where we even could imagine we could go, this is not the most important thing in life. And I think the Christian leader always has to demonstrate that. My marriage is actually more important to me than this work. My, my children are actually more important to me than, uh, than a promotion. Uh, at the same time, I give myself to a greater degree of commitment. I'm invested in this to a, a greater degree of, of personal heart, mind, and soul because I know that this is important. And, and the Christian worldview validates the importance of work in this world. And, uh, and the glory of God in the human being made in God's image, doing what God has created us to do, to use creative energy, to, to be driven by visions, to, to use the, the physical capacity to craft, to manufacture, to create, uh, to use the relational gifts, to be able to sell, to buy, to, to bargain, to, uh, to negotiate, all of these things are validated in, in terms of a biblical worldview that says this life we're living right now is not something that is just a, a, a prelude to real life. This is real life. We're promised an even more real, richer life in Christ to come, but this life is validated as being important, not only to us, but to the Creator who gave us these gifts and gave us life and gave us a task. You seem to say in the book that every company themselves should have a sub-narrative that explains why their services or their products matter but some don't, or at least it's not obvious. How would you counsel a businessman in a corporation that, to be honest, seems to have no compelling story to protect? And, and maybe it's really because the company or the corporation is, is little more than a self-seeking corporation. You know, there is an, an old Christian theological concept that is important here. It's called sphere sovereignty. And, and it reminds us that we are responsible for that which is put into our care. Uh, under our stewardship. So one of the things that every Christian in the business world or the secular world needs to remember is that we're not responsible for the things that are beyond our pay grade. Uh, if, if the company we're working for doesn't have a, a, a clear grasp of its story, we're probably unable to reach two or three executive levels above to solve that problem. But where we are, where our unit is assigned, the, the work that is ours, that has a story. And, and we're at least going to be very clear about what our story is. And, uh, and, and furthermore, we're going to, uh, to try to help others to understand how important it is to know who we are, why we're here, what we're doing, why it matters, and what every group being led wants to know, where in the world are we going? Well said. Without mentioning names, can you speak of Christian businessmen that you know who are leading well here? I mean, what practices are distinctly reflected uh, by the influence of the gospel in their lives? 
Well, I can give you some examples. And again, without names, I have the honor and privilege of working with some of the most incredible Christians who are deployed. And I want to say every work uh, and every position has dignity. All work has dignity. Uh, but I've had the opportunity to be with Christians who have enormous stewardship of responsibility in the American and international corporate world. And some of them are doing things like selling soap and uh, and financial products and all kinds of things all over, or, or the energy business. But they never see it as merely that. Uh, for instance, the Christian needs to understand that he or she has been embedded deep within an organization where no one else could be, where for God's glory and a very strategic purpose, a great commission purpose, a, a purpose for the glory of God, this Christian is now embedded and is given a stewardship and a responsibility. And, and furthermore, they never see it as merely what it appears to be. I mean, that's one of the contrasts between the Christian worldview and any other worldview, and especially the secular worldview. Why is what we're doing important? If it's just to sell more soap, that's hardly very inspirational. People generally will not give their lives to that. And, and so it has to be put into the context of, of what it means to, to help people, what it means to, uh, to, to be able to have a product that enables people to spend less time doing X and more time doing what, uh, what, what they would want to do. And furthermore, even the individuals in the, the organization need to understand you know, this is what my life priorities are. This is how it fits into this work purpose. And, of course, uh, in the business world today, you have to be willing to be uh, and, and quite ready to be agile and, uh, and very adaptable. And, and having a, a leadership model that is rooted in conviction allows you to be agile, uh, allows you to be very adaptable in the right ways and not the wrong ways. In the book, you write this line, quote, In the secular world, leaders worry about the judgment of stockholders and stakeholders. Politicians worry about the verdict of history. As Christian leaders, we know that we will face nothing less than a divine judgment on our leadership, end quote. How important is it that a Christian leader keep the final judgment in view? Well, it goes back to what we were talking about in, in, in terms of why what we do here in this life is important. It's not important because it's the end of all things. If it were the end of all things, we'd be in trouble because we would have to find all life and meaning and rescue and redemption and salvation in this life, and it's not here. But this life is important. And so what we do in this life has a dignity to it and a purpose to it that explains why, for instance, the career we have, the, the profession that, uh, that we've been called to, uh, the particular responsibility given to us is important. And, and the vision of where these things are going is that, that for instance, in the secular world, he says we're doing this in order to get to the next, uh, to the next quarterly report, uh, to the next annual review, uh, perhaps to the next 10-year plan. The Christian does not have no concern at all for those things. But the Christian understands that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, uh, that our, our most important uh, uh, existence is not in this life. We're not going to try to get all our joys in this life. Satisfaction is found only in Christ, and that will be given to us only uh, as Christ brings his kingdom in fullness. But in the meantime, we can do great good, and we're called to do great good, and, and we can change lives. Uh, we, we can influence many. And uh, what a great and glorious thing that God has given us this opportunity. Yes, amen, that is glorious. And to influence many, I mean, leaders use authority and power. Um, this is a theme that you talk about in the book, that authority and power, of course, 
are loaded terms for us today, and really anyone with authority or power is held in suspicion. How does a leader lead today knowing that the folks he may be leading are suspicious of him merely because he is leading? Well, we live in an anti-authoritarian age to only a very limited extent. It it is interesting that uh, you have Theodore Adorno and others who who back, especially after the Second World War, said we have to get rid of all authority. Authority itself is bad because it's always misused. And and, and the problem is we can't live without it. God has made us also uh, to, to desperately need structure, to need authority. That's true in the church, and it's also true in the society at large. Romans 13 tells us that God himself has put governing authorities in power because there is something worse than a tyrant, and that's anarchy. And it turns out the human beings actually long for that kind of authoritative leadership. Now, that doesn't mean that it's the wrong and abusive understanding of authority. And that's where Christians also have to understand that, that our stewardship is always on behalf of another. And, uh, and so any authority we have is a delegated authority. And we have it only so long as we have it, and we have the stewardship of it so long as we have it. And, and so it's kind of like, uh, you know, fatherhood, Tony. You know, the, the, the last thing we need are fathers who don't father. And uh, and certainly there are horrible models of authoritarian fathers who didn't love their children, were abusive to their children, and, and we recoil in horror at that. But the last thing we need, then, on the other hand, are fathers who sit around, you know, looking at four-year-olds and saying, okay, what would you have us to do today? You know, what, what would you have to be our goal in life? Uh, you know, how would you discipline yourself? That just doesn't work, and we know it. And so everywhere you find a, a, a great leader, you, you find the exercise of authority, but we're all judged on that exercise of authority. And, uh, and of course, the most important authority is that of influence. If it comes down to the fact, just like if the father is always having to say, you do this because I said so, we've got a problem. Now, the child should do it because the father says so. But more than that, the child should want to do it because the father has influenced the child so that the child has uh, intuitions and inclinations to eagerly do what the father suggests. And, and and so that you know I think when we look at words like uh, like authority, and and it gets tied to leadership, we have to understand that honesty compels us to say there is no leadership without some form of authority, because by the way, you, there's there when you have people talk about authority, they're often thinking merely about positional authority, but there's the authority of influence, there's the authority of charisma, there's the authority of personality, and there's the authority of of opportunity. So we just have to be honest and say, wherever you find a leader, there's some kind of authority. The question is whether it's being exercised faithfully or not. The title of your book is The Conviction to Lead, and uh, leaders have conviction, and that means that they need some level of, of self-confidence, for a lack of a better word. Where do we draw the line, this balance between having bold confidence or self-confidence and also being humble and correctable on the other hand? Well, another great question, but I think it's implied in the title of the book, The, the Conviction to Lead. I, I am doing my very best to redefine leadership in terms of conviction that is, that is shared with others and then leads to right corporate action. And, you know, the, the, the fact is that if the Christian leader understands that the conviction to lead means to lead with conviction, then we understand that this is not being done in our own name. That this is this is not self-confidence because we're so confident in ourselves. We're absolutely confident in truth. We're absolutely confident. And one of the things I point out is that convictions aren't merely the things you believe; they're the beliefs that possess you, that that define your life. 
And if you lead that way, you're going to understand that our first confidence is, is in truth. And that means for the Christian, our first confidence is in the God of all truth, the God who revealed truth, and in Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And, and, and thus, our confidence is in the fact that we really do know the one true and living God, and we really do know the purpose of life, and we really do know what it means to, uh, to find salvation in Christ and, and then to follow him as his disciple. We really do know right from wrong. We really do know a value system that the world does not understand. And, and based on those convictions, we, we do have a certain amount of self-confidence. The last thing you need is a leader that gets up there and isn't sure. But again, the issue is we should be sure of the convictions. That should produce the confidence. Dr. Moller, you have a prolific output online in many various uh, mediums. In the book you write at one point, quote, although I write books and articles, speak all over the country and appear in, in the media, nothing comes close to the reach of my blog, end quote. What has most surprised you about the leadership possibilities of blogging? You know, Tony, this is something that didn't exist when I assumed my current post of leadership. And I'm about to complete 20 years when I came into this office as president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and all its related institutions, uh, there was no World Wide Web that business thought of on an hourly, uh, moment-by-moment, instantaneous basis. Uh, we had a web address very quickly, but it didn't matter. And, and then along came uh, different facets of the digital world, including blogging. I was one of the very first to start because it struck me that this is the instant way, the, uh, the, the almost universal way, that, that you can reach people without buffers, without barriers, uh, w- without uh, needing a massive platform that, that is under the stewardship of someone else. As you know, I was a newspaper editor. I spent a lot of time in, in the media world. I do a lot of work in television, but someone else owns all those channels. I, I had for about a decade a, a nationally broadcast daily radio program. I enjoyed doing that immensely, but that was someone else's platform. The, the blog enables you to have your own platform, and it's amazing that the quick response you're able to do in a blog is often, I think, the secret. And one of the things I hear on a daily basis is someone saying, look, you know, I, I went to your website because I had a good hunch you'd be talking about this today. Something happened yesterday. Something happened this morning. We want to know how to think about this. And that's an incredible stewardship, but it is something that is new. And, you know, for the sake of, of Christ Church, it is an incredible opportunity. Because just remember, almost all those platforms we've been talking about that we were previously dependent upon are in someone else's hands. And the fact is, there's a huge democratization of this uh, with the digital world, and, and there's just a huge opening. And, and one other thing from a Christian perspective, you know, we get to leap over barriers that those other platforms don't leap over. Uh, there's a great wall of China, and there's even a great firewall of China. But I hear constantly from people behind that firewall that they're reading my stuff. And, you know, that's an incredible stewardship. Yes, and it's a great leadership opportunity. I mean, one of the major themes in your book is that leadership is bound up and tied up with words. Leaders cannot lead without words. Therefore, leaders must be skillful with words. You make this point over and over again in your book. It's a great point. Expand on this for us. What I say in the book that I think is really important, and that is where you find a a leader, you're going to find a reader, a speaker, and a writer. Because words are the, the most important tools of our craft and, and the most important means of conveying leadership by conviction. And so uh, leaders need to lean into words. And obviously, those words have to be the right words. Uh, they have to be well-seasoned words, and they have to be words of authenticity, and they have to be words that lead to action. But 
just try doing that without words. And so one of the things I think we face is that we are in a linguistically impoverished age, an age in which many young people are, uh, are, are barely literate. That doesn't mean I'm insulting their intelligence. They're incredibly intelligent. They're incredibly digitally uh, adept. But when it comes to the, the tasks of reading and writing and speaking, they've got a lot to learn. And leadership, wherever it's found, even now in the digital age, whether it's uh, you know Steve Jobs getting up and personally introducing a new product as he did for Apple, or it's uh, it's it's the you know the political candidate on the campaign trail, or it's the the principal at the school, the headmaster gathering everyone together and saying this is what it's all about, or the pastor preaching. It's still about words. That was Dr. Albert Moeller from his office at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where he serves as president. Dr. Moeller is the author of the new book, The Conviction to Lead, 25 Principles of Leadership That Matters, published in November of 2012 by Bethany House. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Authors on the Line podcast. This free podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. You can subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in iTunes or watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org backslash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. Thanks for listening.